Good day, good evening, and good screaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. And yeah, today it's definitely going to be screaming. In some ways, this is an interview I was hoping I would never have to do, because today's subject is Ukraine. Straight from the horse's mouth of one of the main uh, musical war horses, performers, race horses on stage, who is from Ukraine, but lives in New York, and has a band many of you know and many of you have seen, and if you have never seen this band, don't even bother listening to them first, just see the whole thing. You know, calling it gypsy punk doesn't quite cover it. So, without further ado, the main man of Gogol Bordello, Eugene Hutz. Yes, thank you, Jello. Thank you. Thank you for uh, quite an intro, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, thanks, thanks for being on and all that. Are you on tour right now? You look like you're back home. Yeah, I just got home. Uh, that was the show when you came and saw in San Francisco was one of the last shows of the tour. We went up to Vancouver after that and the Seattle and a couple more towns and then we're back to East Coast preparing for the New Year's run here. Uh-huh. Yeah. New Year's in New York or New Year's overseas? New Year's here, it's been kind of a tradition that we do East Coast run with emphasis on New York City, kind of right. three three nights, New York City, you know, 30, 29th, 30th, 31st. We've been doing it for years and uh, kind of people fell into that, um, you know, into a groove with that with us. And every time we try to deviate from that, they get kind of jittery and upset is it three different venues or just one no we switch up the venues it's uh sometimes it's terminal five or or uh brooklyn steel or uh this time we're doing four nights in brooklyn ball and the idea is that you that way you get to really run the place and call all the shots it's a residency you know you get all the band you pick all the bands it's all friends coming to see friends, supporting one each other. You know the vibe. It's just so hard to find that it's like we got to, you know. If it's Brooklyn Bowls, then is that actually a bowling alley too? Yes, it is. And um, not many people going to be bowling during the concerts, obviously, because we kind of arrest the attention and... Uh, but so it's not so good for their bowling business, but it's great for rock and roll and community and um, people love that place, you know. People. And and, and is it a? Uh, do they put a stage on top of the actual bowling lanes, or is it in another part of the building? Oh, it's a proper concert venue. That's their main thing is concerts. So it's almost like a more of a side dish theme there, you know. It's... <laughs> A side dish. Yeah. A bowling dish. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you grew up in Kiev, right? Yes, Kiev, yeah. And uh, do you pronounce it Kiev or Kiev? Well, see, you're already with the times. You're already moving on to the newer, uh, which is original version of it before it was Sovietized and Russified, Kiev, you know. But it is Kiev, you know. So okay. you're already catching the, 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 the what's being uncovered and, and how it should be. And so 
When you were growing up there, originally under the thumb of the Soviet Union, yeah, and presumably raised to be good Soviet citizens and young pioneers and all that, uh-huh. did you ever think that you, you would you would be where you are now? <laughs> you know, in some esoteric sense, there was some intuitive vector in my family that was kind of setting that up. It's kind of hard to explain without like getting mystical, you know? And, um, Oh, let's, let's get mystical. What created you? What, what created me? Yeah. Well, that would be forces of the universe, you know? And, uh, there is, uh, several schools on thought about that, but to get like, slightly more back practical, you know, yeah, just there, there was some kind of germ in our family that, especially from my father, that uh, in a cultural sense, he was, he was a really great English speaking student from the early years. In fact, he went to various republics of Soviet Union to represent, you know, Ukraine as a, as a English, you know, on the, all those kind of language Olympics and uh, you know he was really into music you know Little Richard and uh, and the works you know and Rolling Stones and Doors and of course so I grew up like listening to Jimi Hendrix in my mother's womb you know like by the time I came out I already kind of like by the time I came out of my mom's womb like I already heard everything that was happening in music by 1972 because my dad was on top of this, you know. And well, how easy was it to stay on top of it inside the Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain? How much access did you even have? He obviously had more than most people, I would think. Exactly. I mean, he was kind of, um, you know, part of the small movement that was good on digging hard and digging deep. So, he, you know... They're a small group of friends. His band, you know, he had a band that called uh, Meridian. And um, they already kind of were onto that thing. Like the door. The door. I mean, there's great pictures of them. They basically look kind of like uh, somewhere between, you know, like New York Dolls-ish, but without the so much glam aspect to it, you know. And it was, it was kind of mind-blowing because it's hard. It's kind of inconceivable. Unless I would have these pictures in my family, you know, like, you know. So, so, um, because I was under the impression, and maybe this didn't apply to Ukraine, that everywhere from uh, Russia to the communist Czechoslovakia, it was illegal to play music live in front of anybody, even in your living room, unless you'd auditioned for government bureaucrats who would certify you professional. Oh, yeah. That whole ridiculousness was in full swing. And uh, but there was, you know, there were loops, loopholes and leeways where people still persevered. I mean, it was small. It was weddings chiefly. You could get away with playing weddings because uh-huh. they considered to be like, you know, uh, <laughs> like because everyone in Ukraine has it's a very rutical country almost everyone has family in at at the country at the villages it's very rare that you find cities that like really have no root back in the village 
So, I yeah, so in a way, in a, in a, in a very kind of <laughs> unlikely way, but these weddings was like a portal where these small bands could actually go and play something like doors covers and people would go <laughs> ham to it, you know, and then get chased by the rednecks, you know, we have them too, you know, <laughs> and get their ass kicked on the way out, you know. Oh my God. <laughs> but didn't even have to be the police or something. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, all those things, you know, they happened in a, like, that's something you don't experience here, but that kind of countryside scene actually allowed for something like culturally, you know, subversive to happen where people at the wedding would be like, hey, that's like, that's like that thing that they don't let, that, that they don't want us to do, you know, like these guys are doing it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so does this mean that you had the new married couple and all the relatives folk dancing in the courtyard to tutti frutti all rudy <laughs> or light my fire well actually not so far from the truth i mean if the if the wedding was you know hip enough sure but that did happen i mean as a little kid i my father dragged me to some of these weddings and you know and uh with him and or sometimes i would go to them myself because i, I grew up outside of kiev in boyerka yeah my first five years i was there so it's a small village slash tiny town so the wedding would happen i would just go over there you know the guys with the drum set wow you know the guys with the guitars wow you know i would just stand right uh -huh. sometimes i just stand right in the middle of them you know like <laughs> between the bass player and the drummer and just like you know take it all in and absorb the vibes and hear them fight with each other how old were you <laughs> how old were you three four five oh so you, you have visual memories of when you were three years old yeah yeah, actually, they're all from this countryside. Well, so do I, but not everybody does. Yeah, yeah, I mean, as a matter of fact, I can match them to some of the pictures that exist from that age, you know, I'd be like, I remember that and vividly, you know. So it was very special, you know. In my case, my family moved house to the one my mother at 93 still lives in, wow. in Boulder when I was five years old. So I have all these memories of the old house wow. and everything. And then the birth of my sister as soon as we got the new house and on down the line, picking out my cat. I named Squonk when I was three years old because she was the only gray and white one instead of a black and white one. But oh, so your father was very fluent in English. Yeah. And I don't know how close Ukrainian and Russian are linguistically where uh, how much of it is actually different. All right. But this is a, the, this is the, the question I'm getting to is how many languages do you know? How many did you grow up speaking and learning? Um well, this is actually a great topic cuz I love languages and I grew up being exposed to three languages, so actually four, well, four with English. So that's Ukrainian, that my, all my grandparents, you know, spoke fluently because they were from countryside and that's the language they spoke. And um, Russian because it was heavy Russification and um, in fact, everything was, I was just discussing it with my father the other night, how he was describing that curve where 
in the late 60s, early 70s, there was this subtle invisible curve where everything that was in Kyiv spelled in Ukrainian, all the streets and markets, you know, one by one started getting respelled in Russified versions and how over a course of decade it was sort of like, you know, just transformed, you know, boiling the frog in a pot, you know what I mean? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that kind of people didn't think much of it because there, it wasn't on their radar, you know, and uh, that that's such an aggressive form of versification. Oh, yeah. Because in a way, here's the trick, because Ukrainian is such a specific thing to be, so you feel like nothing can mess with your Ukrainianness. So if they would be like, respelling it, they'd be like, oh, they're doing it for, I don't know, for some delegation from DDR that's going to come here, so they probably want to show off, and then they're going to paint it back into Ukrainian. That was the kind of the vibe of it. People thought it was a joke. Yeah, and so we're dealing with the consequences of this joke and not taking it seriously at the time. You know, although there were very prominent figures in schools, teachers, who between the lines kept reminding kids to ask kids that this is occupied territory. Really? Yes, it had to be very um, subtle, but because of their archetypal Ukrainianness, you know, they, they had a way of teaching you, you know, chemistry and physics and uh, swinging in all the Ukrainian proverbs and, and kind of explaining that, you know, that this terminology also exists in Ukrainian <laughs> and, uh, you know, so explaining that that's where, that's the root of this, you know, and sometimes they get persecuted and, you know, there, there were pop stars like that too, and TV hosts. There was a quite strong uh, resistance there, but I wish it was stronger even back then, you know. Yeah, yeah. But they, but they, the, but was there some fear with the people, the teachers and others, that at least somebody among them was the uh, Ukrainian or Soviet version of the Stasi in East Germany and the DDR, the the secret police who spied on everybody else and uh, even in your own family and turn you in, or was it not that severe? We did not experience that because. Um, we did not experience this, I don't know, I guess because of specificness of our family in France. I mean, everybody was just kind of in this frame of mind that this whole Soviet Union thing is a fucking joke. You know, <laughs> that all of this is just some kind of show-off thing for God knows who. This is just show-off for for, for the bureaucrats who come from Moscow and need to put in Dunzo. So they can put in Dunzo, you know, and then get the fuck out, you know. And that was the kind of vibe of how we looked at it, you know, like, you, you know. So, so is, were you using the same Cyrillic alphabet that Russian language uses? Yes, well, the, the, the alphabet is actually... Bulgarian. I mean, it's it's Greek. It's Greek Bulgarian. Is and it's funny because this summer, 
our tour was routed in such a way that we made a journey without uh, yeah turn your volume up if you like yeah to. Uh, one second i'm gonna turn up the volume and also plug in the charger pump up the volume hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code acast for 20 off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details There you, there you are. Now you're sideways. There you go. Is it better if I go like this or no? Um, visually, no. You're turned on your side. <laughs> there you are. But sound-wise, the more we get, the better. That's been an ongoing adventure with uh, these podcasts. It's not always that loud on the other end. So, uh, yeah. Be prominent sound-wise. Sound so... Um, is visibility okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You ready for another related question? Well, I want to speak about the languages a little bit more because it's super important. Um, <laughs> you know, with the languages, it's interesting that you ask a Cyrillic alphabet that threads you know, Ukraine um, is originated from Bulgaria, from Plovdiv. And amazingly enough, our summer tour was somehow routed. It was not, I don't think it was a Booker's concept, but it was somehow routed backwards into the heart of invention of Cyrillic alphabets because we went through, uh, you know, we went... Uh, we were in Ukraine, but then we were in Bulgaria, then we were in Greece. And um, the alphabet was basically developed in Greece, in Thessaloniki, and brought by Cyril and Methodius, two monks, Kirill, which is why it's called Cyrillic, Cyril, and main monk, in Bulgaria. Then it spread onto Kiev and Rus, which is Ukraine. And then it was borrowed by the Moscovites, and then it was also borrowed into Mongo by Mongolia because they didn't have their own alphabet up until 20th century. Oh, yes, I did not know that. I just assumed they used a, you know, Pacific Rim type of alphabet with a lot of characters, and I assumed that was Mongolian too. No, no they had, they used Cyrillics in a little bit more funky way, you know. And, uh, yeah, but um, the, the alphabet is birthed in Bulgaria, and that's the, the kind of, it was a great thriving culture, you know. It, it, so was Kiev and Rus, way before Moscow even was on a map, what didn't, before it even exist. 
Right. Well, I think this is going to connect with one of the many psycho excuses Vladimir Putin has used to try and seize Ukraine, even if he has to destroy it in order to make it this bombed out, ruined part of Russia. And that is, I think it was you who told me that the original, Putin claims the original capital of Russia was Kiev, because that was where the Rus originally settled. And where did the Rus come from? Are they descended from Vikings? Yes. So the way, absolutely, you're right. Uh, they try to salad, chop salad all that history into unintelligible uh, medley that suits their you know, geopolitical needs, of course. But, uh, you know, they basically use mythology as opposed to history or logic in Russia. In, in Russia, that's how they run the place. It's Their number one favorite thing is uh, make their propaganda is absolutely unintelligible because they are catering to very uneducated population for 90% of it that is absolutely happy to consume all that because the payoff, they have zero responsibility, you know, for doing, for any other actions. And that's the, their long time history, you know. Um, they are kind of, it's a very successful zombie farm. It's been like that since, <laughs> uh, you know, they mastered it. I mean, they mastered it for the last 500 years. And, you know, to, to answer your question, yes, the Vikings came in and settled with uh, and started, you know, contacting with the uh, Slavic tribes on the modern day Ukraine territory. And uh, the word Rus is actually coming from the, from the Scandinavians. So Ukraine is the original Russia. It's the original Rus. Now, th that happened for centuries where it was a successful, thriving, you know, civilization of its own. Then when the Mongol and Tartars invasions, you know, Genghis Khan and all his sequen uh, sequencers came in, they kind of destroyed and, and taxed heavily Ukraine and all the lands. And... Uh, Moscovite kind of appeared as a as a completely separate entity while all the pillaging was going on. And it actually formed from different tribes. They're not even Slavic. It's Ungar and Finnish tribes. So they're they're not of Slavic nature. That's another thing that people don't know, don't understand, or just uh didn't get to it yet but the huge difference between polish ukrainian you know slovakian uh, bulgarian you know slovenian people is that we are actually slavic tribes there is affinity as ungar finnish tribe of modern day rus is essentially different in their uh in their dna and there was that whole like delirious propaganda that Ukrainians and Russians are some kind of brothers separated at birth is a complete <laughs> load of garbage, you know? 
it's gonna get undone now because obviously <laughs> see what happened you, you you see what happening yeah well, well, well one thing, one thing I guess I didn't get this in you and and read it but it sounds like what I read might not be right and that is when the Mongols stormed in and took over what is modern day Ukraine took all the many of the Rus fled north and east from Kiev and then settled down in a sleepy little trading town called Moscow, which grew into the new Russian capital, right or wrong? It could be said like that. Maybe some of partly of it true. Nobody was there. You know, at this point, it's unverifiable. But that's the myth that they trying to play, that there is that connection. But why? <laughs> there was enough people in that territory where Rus is, where Russia is now, to form their own entities. Like, why did it need to be somebody moving there? There was, there was other tribes living and trying to, you know, make it out out of the swamp. You know. Right. So, where does that leave Crimea, which I had at least thought was actually Russian all along? No. No, it's actually uh, the native population of Crimea is Greek and Tartars. Crimean Tartars, who are closely related with Turks, they're Muslim. So Tartars and Turkics are two different people then? Or are we all talking all under the umbrella of the Ottoman Empire? Um, I mean, Crimean Tartars are Muslims. So, you know, it's definitely was... Um, they, they had a lot of... Um, they had a lot of connection to, to Ottoman Empire. I'm not a specialist on that particular subject, you know. Like I, I more know about the Cossackdom and their kind of their campaigns, right. but but it is the Crimea was populated with, with ex KGB agents, and uh, during Soviet Union time, it was it's kind of like a Florida for retired KGB. People, you know, that's kind of like what they turn it into, which is why there's so many people speaking uh, Russian. It was a strategic move, you know. They they right, kind of right. oh flooded that that area with them, and uh, because I mean, because it's a it is a good place to retire, you know. Well, where, where does where does Nikita Khrushchev fit in? You know, he's such a controversial. Uh, figure you know some of the things that he did were could be some of the things he did were you know could be seen as positive you know because he did debunk stalin's uh, you know glory you know like, you know, people were blindly wasn't he ukrainian or even crimean or not yeah, i think khrushchev was partly ukrainian yeah yeah i think he was but you know he was um and this is all way before my time. So, you know, right. he did have some positive impact, but still, you know, he was a communist, part of the communist dictatorship. So, you know, how good can it get? <laughs> the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yeah. All stuff. That, all Although, that... did he move Crimea to being part of the Ukrainian Socialist Republic or or was it always part of, part of Ukraine? Crimea. Well... I mean, 
listen, in that area, everything has been run, drawn and redrawn back and forth so many times right. that it's actually, you know, it's actually kind of like, okay, here's a map of 1890. It looks like Ukraine, West Ukraine is part of, uh, part of, uh, you know, Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, that chunk. Then, like, literally, you know, a decade later, Austro-Hungarian Empire ceased to exist. So that part, it part goes to Poland, and part goes back to Ukraine, and part goes to to Russia. And it's been drawn and redrawn so many times that some people in West Ukraine, it's a kind of a common folkloric thing to say. People say, you know, my grandfather was, my grand-grandfather was born in Ukraine, went in school in Austro-Hungarian Empire, got married and had family while he was in Poland, and died when he was in Soviet Union. And he never left, <laughs> he, he never left his village. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there has been a lot of fighting over that area for many reasons. I mean, it is right between the pathways of trade between Asia and Europe, you know, and a lot of warfare took place there. But uh, the, the Ukrainian nation exists as an entity over a thousand years, you know. Uh, the, the new semantics of it is calling it Ukrainian, you know. But, uh, you know, back then it called Kiev and Rus, you know. Right. And uh, right. so this is something that's very hard to explain to Westerners. You know, it needs, because it needs like half hour conversation that people don't usually, you know, have about that. They kind of. Oh, I know. And then we already had one a few months ago about it. And I was fascinated. So I thought uh, more people might want to know this too. Yeah, thank you for bringing it up, you know, I mean, that's part of the mission of punk rock is, you know, it is to, to, to keep it educational, you know, and, um, and informational, you know. Which, so somehow, Little Richard and the Doors at weddings, which is still blowing my mind, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow you didn't just get exposed to your father's music, you got exposed to punk rock. Yeah. And were people a little older than you already aware of it, some people? Or was you and your friends some of the first? You know, I did hear about punk rock from my father first. Although it was a different... We had, we had a record of Slade. Slade, oh, yeah. you know, with a, with a, with their fist right. sticking out, written Slade here. And this record was... I, I loved that record as a little kid. It was just so obnoxious and loud and super catchy, entertaining. You know, you just wanted to bounce all over the house to that record. And yeah, yeah, I love your that one too. <laughs> such a great record. And so, and my father told me that that's punk, you know? And uh, I was like, okay, well, it does stand out. I mean, if you're listening to Doors and T-Rex, you know, it's just kind of like, wow, right, this is like right. a different thing, you know? These guys are on the overdrive, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, 
then when I when I started going, you know, I was going to steel metal shows with my father. I was playing drums and just we had a metal scene in Kiev. It, it wasn't huge, but it was there. And my dad was really into metal, and he's still in now. He's into industrial metal. So oh, like Icebreaker wow. is his favorite band, you know. And um, and um, and at one time we went and saw to see this metal show, and there was a band that I was like, "What are they doing?" It's kind of like um, it's it's kind of as fast as Slayer, but it's not really as technical, and it's more fun, you know. And then people and kids there told me like, man, that's that's not mad, that's punk. And I was like, huh, I'm gonna have to look in into that, <laughs> you know. And uh, so then they gave me, you know, so I had older friends, couple kids who went from being metalheads, they, you know, their attire was just changing. They uh -huh. used words like, you know, punk and and uh, and post-punk and and hardcore. You know, and I was like, oh, I got to get load of all this. And I start, they start giving me basically more and more of these tapes. Usually it was cassettes on two sides. Yeah. You know? And one of the things that really blew my mind was uh, uh, punk and disorderly compilations. Huh. Yeah, they were kind of like, I still look at them as a kind of a Bible of like. Interesting. Yeah, which had killed the poor, you know. That right. Kennedys and uh, it had a uh, you know angelic upstarts and GBH and you know the 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 addicts and the exploited and it was just kind of a great uh, selections and I kind of really got hit to that because it just had such a high energy and I started hanging out more with with the kids who were listening to that than kids with the long hair you know that was just kind of like okay been there done that and now I'm onto this. And uh, the interesting thing, as we all know about punk and hardcore, it develops rapidly and in, in, in quantum leaps. So, you know, I was hanging out with them. They were all had mohawks and leather jackets. And the next thing I knew, like half of them were like lost old hair and had barracuda jackets and, you know, and, and combat boots on. So, Ooh. yeah, it was and listening to MOD and things like that. And I was like, okay, this is like, this tra train is going fast, just like taking notes every week trying to catch on. And then one thing that really blew my mind was, uh, was um, when a band that we both know, Deserter, from Poland, right. came to Kiev and played a concert. Now, that was when I first like was, went and saw that punk that Slade is not punk, this is punk. Right, like, right. This is it, like this is a different aesthetic, these people have a different body language, it's not right. about partying, it's about political insight, it's very angry, and um, energy is through the roof. And the Deserter was very impactful because, you know, they say in Polish, but as a Ukrainian, you know, you can, we can understand Polish uh, pretty tangibly, you know. As uh -huh. I said, we're, it's a Slavic family of 
things. Right. And, and they were right. very radical the way they rolled in into Ukraine. They kind of, the singer made announcement right away that, you know, this song is called Moi Cry, which means my land, because don't forget that this is like an occupied territory. I was wow. like, what the fuck? This is fucking awesome. Like, nobody has the balls to say this shit on stage here. Of course, the show lasted like 10 minutes, you know? The <laughs> people came out and, uh, you know, in the uniforms and, and bolted the show down. But, uh, uh, but that made it all the impact, you know, that was like right. this, now this is punk. I got this. I'm going to stick with this, you know? Well, the interesting part about this and deserter and what you're saying about people walking around with Mohawks, I'm thinking, wait a minute, in a Soviet satellite, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, people were allowed to have Mohawks and didn't get arrested or did they? Not to mention if deserter, talked about occupied land in the Ukraine, it means they did it in Poland, too. Yeah. And for a long time, this was still Soviet Empire and the Warsaw Pact countries still running the show, I assume. Yeah. Communist governments. And somehow, Deserter managed to get the Monopoly music label. You think major labels over here are, are heavy-handed and bad, and you know, you, you were in a country and so were deserter, where there was only one label. It was the government's label. And some, and, and both the one in, in Czechoslovakia and in Poland tolerated prog rock because it was formal and people were trained musicians, I guess. I don't know. They put up with that, but not a lot of rock and roll. But then somehow... In Poland, they got the government label to put out that seven-inch EP with no cover, which was the debut of Deserter. Yeah. And somehow a copy of that got over here to Maximum Rock and Roll. Yeah. And then there was just a little bit of freedom of the mail where the occasional letter from a Polish punk would come to me or Alternative Tentacles, and I would write them back and then try to, you know, have any other cool records besides Deserter, and not that long afterwards, there actually were. So things were already starting to loosen. And Absolutely. one of the, the Polish labels, it started to have more than one name. I think it was Poltone, Latonia. actually licensed fresh fruit for rotting vegetables from cherry red and years after it was released in other countries we had a domestic polish release wow. of fresh fruit on the government's label i did not know Apparently, that. That's amazing. it even got paid at least a little bit that's amazing uh i did not know yeah. that well, what's more amazing to me as i say is somehow and i'm assuming in ukraine you weren't like getting vinyl records from England or America or anything. You were passing around cassettes that people just dubbed for each other, right? It, that was the culture, for sure. There, now, there was also vinyl. I mean, I did have a substantial vinyl really? collection. It just took all the money. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, know, you say when lunch money, I mean, like everybody else around the world, except for us, like you, you have to save for like three months to go and buy a record, you know? Right, and it costed right. a lot of money, Bill. It was like 40, 50 rubles to buy one LP. That's a lot of money. Like, that's three months worth of uh, lunch money when you were in high school. Uh, but the key to this, as you described situation, that, you know, it's amazing that people with Mohawks still 
existed there. I mean, the key to this is that this was CASP time. This was already Gorbachev. So when, okay. when Gorbachev came, the, the vibe start transforming. Like this was not Brezhnev on drop of like time anymore, you know? Um, so we start, people start experimenting. Like in the past, if there will be like a punk concert in somebody's kitchen, literally in the kitchen, like when somebody's parents right. are away, you know? You know, then people would go up and, and put up put up the Irakis, you know, as we call them, <laughs> the Mohawk, uh, uh, you know, in a hallway and go into the show and then take it down before going back on the subway. But <laughs> but then we started experimenting. Like, what if I just, you know, just go on a subway in it, you know, what's going to happen? And, you know, cops would come up and say, like, hey, what the fuck, you know, like, come with us and, you know, come and abuse you and, uh, you know, shave it off or you know all these things happened um plus there was a lot of asshole kind of uh, pro-soviet youth subcultures called lubere not all yeah just total bully idiot fuckhead commie uh, morons who would catch us on the street and uh, sometimes beat us up you know and or shave or 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 give us a give it a trim you know what i mean like that all happened um, uh, so a little bit like what happened to hippies in Colorado when I was in my early teens, a little bit. Yeah, this, I mean, these things are pretty global. It's just, you know, in Soviet Union, I think it was just a little different degree of it because it is so highly politicized. And, uh, so because of Gorbachev, things kind of start opening up a little bit. It was still like, Hey, listen, no, it's a, it was like a little less illegal than, say, in early eighties. You know, right? And uh, more, and then somehow Deserter would come, and a couple other bands, some bands from Denmark would come. You know, that were kind of wow. punky, and uh, and nothing big, but something that had that aesthetic. You know, for yeah. for some kind of youth yeah. uh, uh, youth uh, festival, but. Bands from Poland like Tilt and uh, Deserter and uh, who, el who else was there? Uh, another band called uh, uh, Sikira. And, and, oh yeah, yeah, and, and Mo another band called Mo Moskva. It was a deeply ironic name. I mean, they were right, right. anti-Soviet stuff, you know. And uh, yeah, another so one. They were they were coming to play several times and that's kind of, they were very gbh kind of sound like doa yeah. gbh that kennedy sounding bands yeah so that's when i was really like on that train like i i figured yeah. it i figured my way around that thing and start forming bands with my friends that were oh from that tree you know right well, the, well be, before we move into you starting your own stuff, which is coming very shortly, um, I was curious, you, your father was taking you to metal shows, and were these Ukrainian or Polish or metal bands or from the other side of the Iron Curtain? No, they were literally from our district. Right. Yeah. And was part of the reason they were tolerated was that they were nationalist or pro-government? Absolutely not. They were completely the metal. No, they, metal was used for for pro government purposes by both 
DDR, East Germany, and Poland? No, they were these bands that we were into called Adam and Titanic. And they were a very independent spirit that just guys who kicked a lot of ass and, you know, wore cut off jean jackets and, you know, and, 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 and leather pants and head bandanas and just kicked a lot of ass. Like they, they just had that like lifer vibe, you know, like they didn't give a fuck if they ever going to have a job or whatever the fuck. Yeah, I was going like to ask they, how you guys managed to get jobs or did you? To be honest, it wasn't on my radar at all. Like, that wasn't even... This is why I used words like esoteric and mystical in the beginning of the, our talk, is because I haven't quite cracked that case and panoramic understanding of this, but I'm not making it up. Like, this was literally the farthest thing on my mind that... Besides music, there is something else to uh, existence. <laughs> like, right. I couldn't give a fuck less about, uh, you know, joining university or, th or things like that. Like, I mean, I did pass an exam at university and I just didn't even go, you know. I was like, whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was completely pre-living. Uh, I was kind of on that music... I was a lifer from back then, you know. Well, luckily you had a family who understood that and seems to have encouraged it, too. Yeah. Yeah, and much respect to that. That that means so much, you know. Uh, I mean, it's everything. And also, also, you know, my father, also his brother, you know, his brother is a painter and actually a pretty prominent painter in Ukraine and who was petitioned to do a lot of murals and uh, kind of very cool historical paintings and hit a lot of, and he finished, you know, Painter Academy in Kiev. So I grew up in like, a, you know, dirty pants with paints everywhere, you know, <laughs> you know, long hair, art studio, music, you know, rehearsal. And I, I knew that vibe. So, you know, it felt like, that's what people do, you know? I mean, I kind of look, <laughs> I was like, I guess that's going to be my bubble, you know? That's that's the, that's the why, that's what I get attuned to, that people who were doing that. And they were and hustling, of family where you still, you still had a place to go home and get food and a bed to sleep in. Yeah, well, they weren't big places. They were kind of pretty much like shoeboxes. You know, but everybody got along, and I think one of the one of the greatest things that helped me out in touring later on, and I, in fact, many of my bandmates, is that you know, touring in the early years in a van for like five, six years was not a problem for me because I mean, not having any personal space was kind of like normal. You know, like uh -huh. that's how kind of here we grew up. The apartment was tiny and there was eight people all the time. Like grandparents, my parents, my mother's brother, his wife and their son, you know. So it's like, wow, that was the wow. vibe. And, and, and you and it was all mass transportation, too, right? No, no personal cars. 
eventually, yes, of course, taking taking uh, buses, subways, all that. That's normal, ex all the time. And eventually, my uh, my uh, grandmother, as a as a veteran of war, was able to, you know, as a one of the uh, rewards for service in, during entire warfare of 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, you know, uh, they were able to get a car. But I was uh -huh. already basically almost before we left the Ukraine, you know. Right. So um, was, was, was skateboards much of a thing for you guys? You know, you know, <laughs> it might be that I was probably one of the first kids to ever have skateboard in Ukraine. My father brought it from, I don't know where he got it, maybe from Estonia. We had a family in Estonia. We went up there a couple of times um, because they're so kind of, you know, almost, we thought like Estonia was like going to NATO back then, you know. They were just so uh -huh. fuck Russia back then, you know, that... <laughs> you know, and so I think he got it in Estonia. It was a skateboard that doesn't fluctuate. It was kind of those early uh, models, but I had uh, one. It didn't. I did not catch on with any movement. If people were just, there was no movement. People were just looking at me strange, like, "Why are you doing this?" Like. You know, like, what are you doing, man? Like, why are you rolling on a piece of plywood through the street? Like, <laughs> stop doing that. Especially if it's cobblestone streets. Yeah, cobblestone, but it was just, there was no movement for it at that point, you know? Right. I did kind of... But not many cobblestone streets? We do have that, but uh, at, the, at the district where I continued, like, growing up was very industrial and uh, outskirtish so it's 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 more it's more like bronx it's a lot of yeah. projects and a lot of pavement yeah and not a whole hell lot of anything else <laughs> right well um well at some point to my utter surprise i think gorbachev must have been in by then, um, there was starting to be a little bit of rumblings of even attempts at, shall we say, Soviet punk and new wave on the their government Melodia label. And of course, there was more and more stuff coming out of Poland. Um, Armia or Armia, however you say that name, that was a favorite. They did a little bit more interesting stuff with hardcore and later metal than some of the others. Brigada Crisis from Poland, who was you know, almost a space rock band considered a punk band. And then lo and behold, uh, low means nose manager told me one, Hey, yeah, okay. there's a Ukrainian band who made an album and they're a punk band. Uh -huh. And he got me one. Right. And what I really liked about it was it wasn't just, it didn't sound like a million and one British Western European or American punk bands. It didn't sound like anything I'd heard before because one of the lead instruments along with the punked out guitar was an accordion and they knew how to make it all fit. You knew these guys. I know exactly who you're talking about. Of course. Uh, it's yeah. I, 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 I need their name. Well, the abbreviated name is Vavé. 
VV. Right, right. The extended name is Voplevi the Plasova. So the, right, the, yeah. the shout out of Vida Plasov. Uh, okay, yeah, it was presented to me as VV, but I knew that that was just something uh, <laughs> Europeans and Canadians and Americans put on the band because you weren't even try and say the name, <laughs> even though it was in the our alphabet on the record cover. It wasn't Cyrillic, if I recall, maybe not even on the back. Were they a little older than you? Yes, these guys, I know. I knew them actually before they even formed this band. Uh, not on a deeply personal level, but you know, I was, I was at the time I was about 14, 15. And a lot of the guys who I was hanging out with, they were already like 19, 20, 21, and then on so on, you know? So I kind of felt like an intern, <laughs> you know, in a, in a, right. in, in the punk scene, you know, and, uh, you know, I wrote for the fanzines and, you know, if they needed, you know, load in, load out, that kind of thing. Like I was just kind of guy on the fly in a lot of ways before I started getting into my own band. Uh, but I actually was asked several times to load in for Vava and or even go across the town because the bass player forgot the bass for the gig. <laughs> you know? so Sounds like, like another bass player I used to be in a band with. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be the thing. So I would go, I remember a friend, me and my friend were asked to go and get this treasure of a legendary bass because he had this very, it was a very eccentric band. Everything about them was absolutely singular. And the bass player, Sasha Pipa, he had this square bass that he made, I don't know, out of what, out of, out of a fucking chair or I don't know what. It was painted all like stripe and weird. And... Um, so it had no case, of course. And uh, we remember we went and got it and we we're on a subway going back to the gig. And, uh, you know, people were just looking at us like, what the hell is this? Like, why are these weird looking, you know, kids carrying this snow shovel or whatever, or whatever it is, you know? Uh, and uh, that was, of course, very different to what we thought about the situation. You know, we were like, do you even motherfuckers know what what how in we are on the we're carrying yeah, like yeah. A, 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 we're carrying holy grail as far as we are concerned you know we're here we are on the right. subway with a holy grail standing here loud and proud <laughs> you know here's our here's the base of the most badass ukrainian band and we're carrying it you know so and how um you know, I know the feeling, believe you me, but uh, that'll eat up all your interview if I tell you uh, 77 Colorado punk stories. Save that for another time. But the, the, the where you were taking the bass on the subway to the VV gig. How many people would go to their gigs? Well, you know, several hundred. Wow. Yeah, I mean, maybe not more than 200. But that was considered that would consider to be like because the places were tiny, so right, you know, it would be like some like uh college dorm thing or some kind of a theater that was out of uh circul out of circulation, you know, sometimes smaller, sometimes in a factory, there would be like a 
cultural venue, literally in a factory. So that also happened. Right, right. Um, but not not a lot. But it was very uh, it was very friendly scene. Like the metalheads and people just went of all different kind of walks. You know, people who listen to like communards uh, and you know all the like British kind of synth bands would go uh, and uh, and everybody would just kind of do twist and shout to uh, to Veve because it was so unifying. It was just good time, good time yeah. music, you know, like punk punk with accordion and in Ukrainian, you know, it was just such a big statement and. Another thing is that, you know, they were very uh, legendary when going, playing in Moscow and, and St. Petersburg, showing them that, you know, fuck off, you know, like, we have our own thing. And they became actually totally legendary on that whole territory. I mean, huh. along with us, they've been boycotting them for many years. Of course, there is no turning back. But in Soviet Union right. time, it was a kind of a mission to go... To uh, to these you know centers of the Soviet Sovietness and kind of tell them culturally to fuck off. So that their uh, their gigs were you were you allowed to advertise them and put up flyers on telephone poles or were they all word of mouth? Word of mouth, word of mouth, and uh, predominantly there was a one only newspaper where that had a, a cool journalist um uh, his name was uh, Alec alexander um uh, uh, uh and, and in fact i i kind of worked for him for a while as being a reviewer when i was like uh -huh. 14 you know wow. i i met him and he was like hey if you want to like he was just a hip guy who wanted to be like hey listen like as much as we can report about the scene uh, between the lines or I'll work my magic, whatever we can do. And fanzines somehow got passed around and reproduced. Yes, well, fanzines, that was another dimension. That was heavy on the print. Like, I was involved there just writing for fanzines. That was one thing, yes. Right. This was actually a one official newspaper where the guy just boiled, the editor bowls out and was wow. down for the cause. And uh, for a while, I, I wrote several reviews and, you know, and he was just kind of like, then it all got closed down and kind of fizzled out. But there was a little bit of... Speaking of closing down and fizzling out, we have come to the end of hour number one, pretty much. So stay tuned for hour number two. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.